Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. We're recording on Thursday, April 15th. Tax day. Well, tax day has really gotten smeared out of existence by COVID. Like, when do you owe your taxes? What do you owe? Are you getting checks from the government? You have to pay. Um, I hope I hope your tax situation is clear this year. All of you out there listening, I know it's been a difficult year in so many ways that some uh, administrative stuff on the tax side. I remember when I, we might have talked about this on the show even before, when I was a kid, tax day was like a big deal. Like the post office would like have a party and it'd be open late and people would take their stuff and like... <laughs> There was very like music man kind of feel to tax day uh, of my youth. Yeah, we had a very 21st century uh 21, you know, like 2020 feeling to our um to our tax day. Last night when Bob was on the phone with our accountant at 9 p.m. because the new <laughs> portal that the accounting firm is using to have people e-sign documents, of course, decided not to work on the evening of April 14th, probably because everyone under the sun was trying to get in, you know, get their tax uh, tax documents in on time. And we have to file. We didn't get the extended deadline because he is self-employed and we have to do the quarterly situation. Mm. Who knows why the IRS did not extend those deadlines as well? It doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. But we had adventures in bureaucracy. So I hope that it was um, less exciting for everyone else. You know, my 11-year-old self would have been so disappointed to hear that we spent, you know, a non-insignificant amount of time in our adult lives here in 2020 in portals, right? (laughs) And yet that's the portals. (laughs) Wait, we're portals in the future? You wonder, who was the first like tech person who was like, I know, we'll call this thing yeah, a portal. Right, yeah. Because black hole was too on the nose, I guess, maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, in Lawrence, um, and I think this is a real thing and not something I dreamt, which some, you know, these days, Rebecca, <laughs> it's, a, it's hard it's to an say. an open question. Yep. But there was a guy that would host a barbecue as part of like the party on the lawn of the post office. <laughs> and he would barbecue like, let's say things that were available to him, which <laughs> like what? <laughs> well, squirrels, groundhogs, mm, okay. raccoons, possums. Wild game. Mm-hmm. They may or may not have been hunted, but still have met their end by humans on say dr- while driving. Um, ah. Was part of where where it came from. Um, That's adventurous. You know, you you do what you can. I can't say I ever partic- partook of um, uh, a ground groundhog barbecue but i do remember it distinctly and even then feeling Uh, like this is very parochial kind of behavior (laughs) uh, out of kansas even now uh so anyway welcome back we had a a nice time lots of good feedback from the um kind of the meandering talk about what what kinds of things should we always good podcast Mm. when you talk about what kind of podcasting you should do (laughs) it's a little meta action yeah it really is and we'll get into that uh, after our first sponsor break here I guess before we do that, I'd like to make a... Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. 
So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Uh factual i guess this is what we call a correction is it used in the mm. older days of journalistic okay. parlance i think in part of our thinking about what the you know interesting candidates for um should i bother should i read it would be the sophomore mm. novel right as, as yes. a category and i said you know like um taylor jenkins Re- reads new book after daisy jones the six turns out uh daisy jones the six was her seventh novel <laughs> Um, I knew it was not her first, but I didn't know it was her second. Yeah, and I guess uh, I was just wrong about that. And her breakout book, it wasn't even her breakout book, apparently. Was her, that the Seven Husbands Lives, see, whatever? it was that um, Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, or Evelyn Hugo, I believe, which I get confused. We did a, a theme day on the site, this is behind the scenes stuff, for a different book. That was called like the seven and a half deaths of Elizabeth Hardcastle or something like that. Do you yes. remember this, Rebecca? Yes. And I those do. two things are now all scrambled up and mm-hmm. mixed up. And then I just didn't know about the five other Taylor Jenkins <laughs> Reads books that were out there. Apologies to Truth and to Taylor <laughs> Jenkins Reed um, for for screwing that up so badly. Um, let's see. And I think. Our feedback about when people are interested in picking up the book version of adaptation, you know, mm. where in that shape, I think we were kind of right. We Most okay. people become interested, if they're going to be interested in reading a book that's um, in the news, in the zeitgeist because of an adaptation, is pretty soon after they finished watching the thing itself. So, you know, they watch the thing, now like, huh, that was interesting, I'm going to go read the book. Um, okay. It doesn't sound like a lot of people are ant- doing anticipatory reading of things being adapted. I guess that makes sense. It would it makes sense for a couple of reasons to me. One is you may not know it's an adaptation until watching it and getting in some sort of the buzz mm. cycle about a particular mm-hmm. property. That's true. If you do happen to know that it is based on a book, maybe you're more likely to like that's the thing that's gonna pick you up. I wanna I wanna get on this train now. But it, it feels to me like even knowing it's an adaptation may not happen until you've already seen it, 
started That's watching it point. and then reading news and seeing other coverage of it other yeah, places. And even if you do know it's an adaptation, the barrier to entry is so much lower, yes. whether you're talking about a two-hour movie mm-hmm. or a one-hour TV series, even with 10 episodes. You can watch one or two of those and decide it's not your jam, and that's a much smaller commitment than picking up a whole book and trying to have that experience and then watch the adaptation. Yeah. That's interesting. At least that's what our listeners are saying. Like I said, I think the the data that would probably be more definitive is looking at sales curve data for, you know, the Underground Railroad when it comes out, or, mm-hmm. you know, Shadow and Bone when it comes out, or Bridgerton um, when it came out. When were people starting to pick that up? It would make sense to me that you do get some uptick as soon as the thing is announced, as it gets closer and closer. But I'm betting the peaks are indeed kind of like when the middle of the bell curve of watchers is done watching and then they're mm-hmm. done with it. I don't, I can't imagine in a series you're going to start reading the book in the middle of watching the series or like while yeah. the thing is happening. Um, maybe there's a, I, I don't think this made it onto the agenda, but Bridgerton got picked up for seasons three and four. Uh, right. Okay. And I don't know if those correspond to books. I know it's a, I think it's a seven book series that Julia Quinn wrote. That's Bridgerton or whatever it is. Do the, those books correspond to seasons? I don't know off the top of my head, but I could imagine a lot of people in anticipation in season two, if it is based on book two, that might be a, that might short mm-hmm. circuit this kind of mental model of it. Uh, right? Do you happen to know, Rebecca? Are they based the seasons I based on books or? Don't, season, I, know I don't you didn't, know. I, I don't know. You didn't I, watch the first. Yeah, season, I read. I? I read a bunch of the Bridgerton books years back when I was first discovering romance, and I really they were f- a fun experience. Um, that's all I really remember yeah, sure. about them. Um, they were a fun experience, and then the um, I just don't do well with period pieces on screen. So like I watched the first fifteen minutes of the Bridgerton Netflix adaptation, I was like, this is just not going to be my jam. Mm. Um, so I that's as far as I got invested, which is to say not invested at all in what's happening with you don't seem like the kind of person who's like super into like the drawing rooms and corsets vibe i had no. never had thought about that before but that res- that, that makes sense yeah it just doesn't work for me and i think that's maybe why the dickinson adaptation did work for mm. me so well is that it, it it turns so much of that on its head like it makes the quiet parts loud about like i don't care for subtlety on screen i guess you know like just be as ridiculous as you're all really being underneath all of the proper behavior. Um, and the Dickinson adaptation brings that out and sets it to a hip hop soundtrack and um, mm. really, you know, shows all of those things. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know um, what, if it's like one book, one season of Bridgerton, or if it's sort of that universe and a bunch of stories in the universe just being told over the course of several seasons. But, I didn't see, again, I do follow the in pub, the the book sales data we get in Publishers Weekly on a weekly basis. And again, that usually is just like the top 20 of major genres. I never, again, I may have missed it. I don't think I remember seeing Bridgerton starting to crack like the mass market paperback I guess what is that what technically romance mm-hmm. would fall under yeah, the mass yeah, yeah. market paperback? I don't remember it cracking that, um, but I also don't typically spend a lot of time looking at oh. the mass market paperback list, so I don't really know if I would have. Yeah, it or I not. don't remember if the paperbacks did, but there were like some older copies of some of the Bridgerton books that were selling or were at least listed for like bonkers high prices, I think on eBay oh. when. The show came out. I'll have to go back and figure out hmm. what that was about. I think maybe it was on one of our agendas as like story if we have time to get to it and we didn't have time to get to it. But something interesting did happen mm-hmm. with some of those titles as as the Netflix show was coming out. Yeah. 
Um, let's see. And, the, and, and just the, the lonesome dove read-along requests continue <laughs> to pour. And I don't know what to do here. Like, I told I you mean, we're maybe, probably not doing it. And it doesn't seem to stop. So I'm not sure we, what we're doing here. We'll just think about it a little bit longer. Maybe we'll give the people what they want. Yeah, I don't know. Right. I'm going to read lonesome dove. So oh, I did. I, this is news. This is breaking news. You, you're just read-along or not. You're going to enter into I think I'm going to do it. Now, if we have to commit to making podcast episodes about it, my timeline for reading <laughs> lonesome mm. dove might shift but i have the intention to read it sometime this year we'll see if anyone out there has one one of my i have several trepidations about this whole enterprise and really everything when you, when you come right down to it <laughs> several trepidations the jeff <laughs> is a, it's on the tin i don't want to tell you uh is how to do it like okay so we're, we're gonna do a read along it's an 800 800 page book is it eight episodes? You know, are we doing 100, 110 pages per? Is it some other kind of what's interesting? What mm. what gives you that kind of really getting into it, but it's also not Talmudic, which I have a tendency towards anyway, so I don't know if that's good radio. If people out there, I know you're listening to a book podcast right now, there's chances are you might like some other ones that we won't judge you or feel jealous, at least publicly. Have you heard of a podcast or another form especially audio, that does an extended read-along experience of one yeah, book. What, what I, are the successes and what are the failures? I'd be very interested to know. I think maybe read-along feels too constraining, the idea of actually reading it along like piece by piece for mm. each episode. And the idea that I'd had for if I if I were going to do this. There's like, like seven, seven subjunctive cases here. I like this very much. <laughs> if... <laughs> <laughs> our shared wheelhouse yeah, right. has so many, so many subjunctive cases. Mm -hmm. So if I were, but if I were going to do this, and I'm definitely going to read the book, I think if I were producing the set of these, I would read the whole book and like break the episodes based on that. And I think it would probably be more like one episode that's a big broad overview of what happens in the book and mm. another episode about I don't I mean I don't even know because that's, I haven't read it yet right but sort of there's like a, on the horses and the hats a lot of hats yeah, or the dove. history around mm. Lonesome Dove or like the 10 best moments in Lonesome Dove you know I've got questions so I could do an hour long of 15 questions I have about right. Lonesome Dove right. Right. something like that that you could come to it having read the whole thing and maybe get a lot or come to it having not read the book and get the experience of picking up a bunch of like tidbits and decide if you mm. want to go from there. But to, to me, that's more interesting than just let's read a hundred pages a week and talk about them. Mm. Um, uh, tell us your thoughts about this podcast. We probably won't do listener. <laughs> the one, the one that I've listened to um, the sort of unfortunately named binge mode that the ringer does or did, mm. I guess it's come to an end now because the, one of the hosts, um, went off to a different company. They did, um, on the book side, they did the whole Harry Potter series. And they would do like a two-hour episode on like six chapters. And they'd go like six, and it was really long. And they would release one like every other day. Oh, so wow. it was really immersive. Um, I liked what they did with, or it was a new thing under the sun to me as a cultural discussion vehicle. I, I thought it was really opened my eyes to a whole range of possibilities. I wouldn't try to replicate it, but it did a lot of interesting things that I that I really liked. Again, now that's different. That's a 
you know, the bookish internet content trap of all time. So there's probably, it's the exception that proves, that proves the rule uh, when it comes to a read along of some kind, you know, people have probably read it already. If you haven't read the book, you probably know the characters, have seen the movie and other things like that, where something like Lonesome Dove, who is the ideal listener is kind of the question. Is someone that's already read the book, that isn't going to read the book, that's maybe going to read the book? And I think that's where it really gets stuck. We say, yes, a read along. And for those of you who are, are with us, we see you and appreciate you from the, from literally, honestly, from the bottom of our hearts. Mm-hmm. But what you guys might be interested in and what would, you know, four or 5,000 people on a regular basis be interested in that, you know, would be worth our time as employees of a company. That's a separate question entirely. And I don't know, I don't know if there's something there yeah, or not. And, and I, I mean, there's a little irony happening here too, because I am maybe in the lowest quartile of people who get paid to think about books and host podcasts about them who would be like, pigeonholed into doing a read-along podcast because I am not a listener for a read-along podcast. I routinely fail at book. Like, I don't even join book clubs anymore because I have so consistently failed at reading things (laughs) that are assigned to me, even if I were interested in that book. So, like, there's a decent chance that we would decide we wanted to do this Lonesome Dove situation and then I would immediately resent that I had to read it on a certain schedule. Yeah, I mean, mean, it is so long that it has its own dangers that maybe didn't we wouldn't with something else though we did our experiment back in the day with thinking fast and slow which we Mm -hmm. enjoyed doing we just the schedule got wonky and it's so long and other things got in the way but i think even that abortive attempt we did find it was interesting to sort of take Mm -hmm. piece by piece true that and that was fun amanda nelson and i for a remixed episode all these are available for book ride insider subscribers we did spend a whole hour on the first line of harry potter and the sorcerer's stone um, back in the day so it is not for want of how to fill the air is what i'm saying here especially from the guy that is speaking at the moment (laughs) Um, but a general but a real and honest question about a dedicated quite a bit of time talking about a book what kind of content, what, what kind of experiences is exciting, interesting, experimental that mm. we get something out of that we can provide? I, I think that's, we're, we're, you're hearing us talk to each other about really not knowing what the right vessel for that is. Because yeah, Read Along is sort of know, now just like a, I don't a know. Thing. It's like we're using that to describe the thing we're going to make, but we don't even know what that thing is. Yeah. Be. You know what we should do is like find some way to, well, we should like put an affiliate link for a lonesome dove on the site in a particular place, and then we should track how many of them we sell in a dedicated amount of time. And if we hit like a threshold of folks who buy lonesome dove because they're invested in this episode, we will make the lonesome dove. Situation. So it's like it's like a Kickstarter using Amazon affiliate links. That's a weird. Why just do the it's Kickstarter? Like- it's like I mean, you gotta vote. You've gotta you gotta tell us you're committed so that we don't spend all the time making a bunch of episodes that no one's gonna listen to because then we're on the hook to serve our advertisers. Right. Though no, I mean that's we've done kicks we again it, this has been the the early days of Book Riot. We did Kickstarters. Uh you have we have sort of war <laughs> stories to tell about trying to make the thing. And that was much yeah. more difficult. But that might be something for us to think about in a different way. Okay, think about we don't have to do four or five thousand downloads. If we got 200 people to kick in 20 bucks, I don't know. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
maybe this is our long-held desire to like experiment with Patreon. <laughs> yeah, and I really wouldn't even want to do that. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to do that, but like as a one-off kind of thing, that might be. And maybe like now I'm really cracking the the, the <laughs> turtle open. Is it even the right book? <laughs> cracking the turtle open. I mean, it's it's messy in there. I mean, Leave I don't the know. Turtle but alone. I can only imagine the inside of a turtle. <laughs> That's a sentence. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Uh, you know, before be we, I'm going to get us off of Lonesome Dove here because yeah. this is the wheels are coming yeah. off. Um, but before we end listener feedback, I want to thank one of our listeners who sent us, who is a school counselor and who yes. sent us, I thought, very heartening confirmation that when we were talking a few weeks ago, I think it was in Texas, about um, parents who had become upset that their kindergartners or young school children were read a story that contained a trans character and the school responded by saying that they would make the counselors available for any kids who needed to talk. I was musing like, well, given what I know of school counselors and where where their values tend to lie, they're probably really on hand for the kids who are trans or queer or who are feeling marginalized by this happening. And this very kind listener wrote and confirmed like, yes, that is most likely what was happening. The kids are in good hands with those school counselors. So thank you for the good that it did my heart (laughs) to Mm -hmm. hear that and may all of those school counselors efforts continue to succeed indeed 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 um let's take a break when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply your brain needs support and new ollie brainy chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health made with scientifically backed ingredients like thai ginger l-theanine and caffeine brainy chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus stay chill or get energized be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com that's o-l-l-y.com these statements have not been evaluated by the food and drug administration this product is not intended to diagnose treat cure or prevent any disease Okay, this is either huge news or a fad. Okay. Well, fad is too strong. Eye-popping numbers for the the sales of Amanda Gorman's The Hill We Climb. I I don't even know how to put this into context, Rebecca. It's Mm. so the best-selling poetry week one release. Um that it's it's mind mind boggling it's the first 1.5 million copies mm-hmm. uh and that's just in print we don't even know about i don't know if there's an audio version that you can buy you can still watch um videos uh of the perf- performance the reading the whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it um from inauguration and her next couple of books are also getting 1 million copy print runs. Yep. I'm having trouble contextualizing this at all because we haven't never seen it. I mean, we would talk about, we had no context for Rupi Kaur and now we don't have context mm. for this. Like this is an order of magnitude beyond that for week one sales. 
Yeah. Um, well, this is the power of the pre-order. Yes. Yes. Because pre-ordered books all hit the register on day one when that book is published, whether you pre-ordered it six months in advance or a day in advance. And PRH and Amanda Gorman and everybody involved in this were really quick, I think, after the inauguration to realize that they needed to cycle up the publication Mm -hmm. of this and they needed to have those pre-order links ready ASAP. Um, and I would guess we don't have access to it, but I would guess that you know, that that what we're seeing here was that inauguration momentum, right. like it, that if you could see the chart of the speed and like pacing at which people were ordering this, I would bet most of the pre-orders of the hill we climb happened within about a week of those pre-order links becoming available. And then now that the book is out. And she's continuing to be really visible and is doing lots of interviews. And it's wonderful to see her everywhere. And she was on the cover of it was it was either Vogue or Vanity it was Vogue. Fair. It was Vogue. I read the profile. Uh, just a stuff. really remarkable whole thing that's happening with Amanda Gorman and so well deserved. It, I think it's going to continue to sell. Um, but it's like if Amanda Gorman just released this without that pre-order momentum, I think it would still have been a really big deal. But the marketing around it and the, the way that they made it available is so really, really smart. So if you think the really book smart. was, let's say the book had been published on December 20th. Oh, before the inauguration. And then on the inauguration week, they had, let's say there were a million and a half copies sitting around to be sold. You don't think it would have sold yeah. a million copies that inauguration week? Because I think it would have. Oh, no, I think it, I think it would have. I right. just think that it... Yeah, it was going to be huge after the inauguration, Mm -hmm. regardless. But like, if it had come out on December 20th, which is my birthday, so that would have been nice. Um, (laughs) Good job with your random date Mm -hmm. selection today. Um, That it would have just been like a poetry release. She wasn't super famous. I know the release, but in terms of like a one-week poetry sales record, I think whatever day this book came out around, or let's put it this way, since it came out after the inauguration, it was going to be the week it came out. If the book was out and then she gave this performance, it would have been huge. I'm trying to think if there's any way she yes. could have sold more in one week. I think the only way oh. would have been if it had been maybe the week after and everyone's like there and it's, well, no one's in stores. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's yeah, a combination think, of factors I mean, that really. Yeah, I think she, if it had, I think you do lose some people when the book is not immediately available. Right. So if it had been published, in December, and then they were able to just drop those links mm-hmm. all over the place mm-hmm. after she gave that amazing performance and was viral for the whole week. I think it would have been a little bit higher. The, this was going to be huge. It wouldn't have been the record-breaking debut without the momentum of pre-order, yeah. I don't think. That, yeah, that's, yeah. that's and, and it's sort of beside the point here. We're really now down into yeah. sort of like implementation details. It's so hard. I mean, since we're in Uncharted Territories... It's hard not to imagine this is the peak of her sales. Um, I mean, the inauguration, the moment, the reading. I can't think of another sort of platform to launch Mm -hmm. that can even come anywhere close to that. So even though I'm high on Amanda Gorman in all ways that I can be, in terms of like mind share and cultural space that she is occupied, that she's occupying... It kind of almost has to be the peak, as weird as that is to say, that she's only been in our lives for most of us for a few months at this point. But when you're at such heights, there's not too many more. There are not too many more rungs on that ladder 
to get to. So I'll, yeah. what what does the next year look like? Um, in that Vogue piece, she talked about getting sponsorship deals and things from all quarters, turning down, mm-hmm. I think, something like $17 million worth of endorsements and other kinds of deals just because it was too much and there's other things going on. And, and she's like, dudes, I'm going to sell 3 million copies of poetry <laughs> next year. I don't need your stuff. I'm not, I don't need a Reebok contract. She's um, like, I don't need an Instagram account with twee uh, illustration. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't need, I don't need to, to put the, 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 the age defying serum hashtag in whatever it is I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I hope she, I guess I'm just worried. I, I get worried about young people with this kind of heat on them, no matter mm, what. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's 23. Yeah. So it's not like she's Macaulay Culkin and home alone or something like that. But the, the rapidity of the rise um, to a kind of spotlight that I don't know. I don't know. Kind of being all kinds of expectations and mm-hmm. projections being placed upon her. Um, she seems remarkably uh, way more self-possessed than I would ever be at any age, I think. Uh, so if anyone can handle it, she can. But is this, is this handleable, I guess, is yeah. maybe the real question. You know, I heard her give an interview on Hillary Clinton's podcast. And I think one of the benefits of being a poet is that no one expects to get famous being a poet mm-hmm. <laughs> and like well maybe someone does but whoever has been sitting around expecting to get famous being a poet is very unlikely right. to, yeah. to realize right. that dream that um she's invested in the work and just by nature of having been the inaugural poet you're going to have bonkers book sales when you have a release like this and once you've hit like the outlieriest of outliers yeah. <laughs> in the in the triple cherries i mean a lot of ways triple cherries here, yeah. yeah, I you know, I think it, she seems like a very reasonable and grounded person and probably is not expecting for the rest of her books forever to sell a million and a half copies. I hope that they do. And one of the things, one of the upsides about also being so young is having a long career yeah. in front of her in which many, many creative options are going to be available. So I I think I'm more interested in like, what's the next Amanda Gorman project and how is she going to impact like the world of the arts outside of writing a book of poetry mm-hmm. um, i hope that she continues to write poetry obviously um, but this is i think that's how you can capitalize on a platform like this is not expect every and not expect to put you know six more books out that i'll sell as many copies no, as no, this no, because no. regression to the mean is just what's going to happen <laughs> in most situations but but use it as a a jumping off place i hope that she's also surrounded by like a teams of very grounded people who understand what a spectacular and special thing this was and that maybe the heat's not too hot yeah i hope the heat's not too hot or or that um she's made of sterner stuff than i would be at 23 and and, and to enter into such a a furnace. It's just we. I, I just is racking my brain for a literary analog of any kind of oh. of the the delta between the day before and the day after. I couldn't. Mm. I couldn't come up with. I mean, I couldn't come up with anything. Mm-mm. You you get books that get turned into big movies, even things that turn into. You know, I mean, what your your. E.L. James, right? I mean, th- that's yeah. the only other, the Rollings, the E.L. James, even those were a, a rolling success. <laughs> not a steady they build. turned into huge yeah. moments. Those are, not, I mean, they're those are freight trains. 
um, and they become franchises. But weirdly less about the author than about the work, even though those people are extremely... This is the Amanda Gorman show. Yeah, this, this is like a supernova. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she and the work are, I think, uh, overshadowing is wrong, but more people know the name Amanda Gorman than the name of the poem she read. Whereas way more people knew Fifty Shades than the name E.L. James, or more people know Harry Potter than J.K. Rowling. So that's a that's a heady that's a heady group to be in. Yeah, um, when yeah, you she was are saying, the product in a lot. Of ways. She was saying on that episode of Hillary Clinton's show that like you know she gave the inaugural she read the inaugural poem she went and did whatever she was supposed to do right after that and then her phone just like basically exploded <laughs> because right. the, noti- like, like the winning notific- the super bowl or something like, right or winning an academy yeah, award like, where everyone you've ever met is like whoa or even well, people you don't know yeah everyone you've ever met is texting you and then like everyone in the world who watched that inauguration is tagging you on instagram yeah. while they repost the clips of things <laughs> and she was like it basically just overheated like i had to put my phone away because i it was too much to <laughs> to even do and i was like you know what not looking at your phone while you're going viral is probably the smartest yeah, thing a young person right. could ever do that's right that's right um and i'm sure she's going to have waves of um, I don't know, being feeling like it's out of body experience versus normal days versus really weird situations, I mean, surreal kinds of situations mm-hmm. where you're getting offers and opportunities and meeting people and being put in positions that you couldn't dream of because for a poet, it didn't exist. This is uncharted <laughs> territory. Uh, for I'm trying to, in terms of like, you know, at, at, at various points, you like T.S. Eliot, this is hard to remember. Well, I don't remember because I wasn't alive. It's hard to wrap your head around that T.S. Eliot would like go on tour and read to like football stadiums in the 40s. I like, did not know that. You know, that. like that in, 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 you know, Twain or Dickens, like a different kind of literary celebrity where you would go see them like you would go see a rock concert. Really? Yeah. T.S. Eliot is just like out there in the Superdome reading. I mean, there the were no Superdomes in like 1946, <laughs> but like would go to a giant amphitheater and fill like 15,000 seats. That's wild. Yeah. Right. It is wild. It is wild. Um, and, but we haven't seen anything like that. I mean, before Amanda Gorman, if you were to pick like in the last 30 years, the author that could fill a Superdome, we're looking at like um, three names. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe three just to speak. I don't know. Are you going to get 70,000 people in the Superdome for JKR on the eve of the last Harry Potter book? Probably. Probably that's yeah. the last one. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's really hard. And again that's, again, that's not saying people who have books that are also celebrities. That's a, that's a different thing. Right. Like, you know, Alicia Keys can fill the building by herself. She doesn't need the book that she wrote to come out to be a part of that. But people are there for the book. Um, so I'm watching with really... You know, again, it's uh, it's a kind of a beyond here, there be dragons moment. We're off the map mm. in terms of where we go. Um, can't help to think that the the inertia, or not the inertia, but the kinetic energy that got her up there will recede and come back into some kind of way that looks like what is it? What does normal Amanda Gorman career look like? That's the question for oh. me. Like, what is her like in five years? She's just doing stuff. Like, what is that at this point? I don't know. So interesting. Yeah, you can imagine a lot of, like, I could see a future for her, like, in the 
Biden administration or maybe the future Harris administration right. doing something with the arts or some sort of high profile nonprofit and advocacy work seems like th that's an excellent use of a platform. And she seems invested in that kind of work. So it doesn't like seem like she's going to Marilyn Robinson it, which is like go teach and just write book, which is great. That's a wonderful use. Like she's got mm -hmm. ambition that's political and much larger scale that's outside of in addition to, outside of in addition to an excess of around her literary work mm -hmm. um because there 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 could she's going to have enough money that she could not do anything besides whatever she wants forever right you know at this point um but that is clearly not the way she's interested in doing um for now so okay amanda gorman Very cool um to see speaking that. of people that um could maybe at one point have filled a thing i just want to there was a blog post, um, George R. R. Martin did one, and mm. I don't know if you saw any news about this, and apparently George is having a really hard time, as a lot of people oh, have no. had this year, um, and we followed the Winds of Winter saga, I don't, it, that's maybe too strong, but the much anticipation, much delayed Winds of Winter thing, and I think as we suspected, there's a lot more going on with George R. Mm -hmm. R. Martin than than you would know. And it sounds like he's been writing a lot this year mm -hmm. and he's in his cabin somewhere, but it's also been very difficult. Um, one of the more, I don't know, it felt to me like you really are seeing behind the screen. Um, I'll find oh. the link to put in the show. notes. Yeah. Too. I saw that it was out, but I had not had a chance to read it yet. And even before COVID, yeah. I think we shared the feeling of hating it, that authors are put in the position where they have to, where where they feel that they have to explain mm -hmm. themselves to their fans about when the next book is coming out or why it isn't out yet and what's going on in their personal lives or their health or whatever is causing the delay. And especially after the last year that we've all collectively experienced, I can't imagine being under the kind of mm -hmm. very public pressure that a writer in mm -hmm. his position is under. And I would love for us to collectively as people who are love books and are fans of things like use this as a moment to evolve into a shared agreement that like we need some compassion yeah. <laughs> around this and if we never get another blog post from another author apologizing that their book isn't out yet or explaining why it's been delayed or that it's never coming and having to disclose really difficult personal mm -hmm. things, I think that would be a great sign of progress. Yeah. We, we, we're not entitled to that information. And it's really unfortunate that I, I feel very bad for him for whatever he's been dealing with, but just really unfortunate that that's the thing that now he feels that he's expected to share with the world. Yeah, and you can it's it's it comes from a very human place of you know wanting to tell people what's going on, feeling yeah, like nobody you let wants to be disappointing and, people. Yeah, but I think there is. We were talking recently about you know what are some of the open questions in the world of books and reading we're interested in, like what you know un, undecided, unsettled kinds of questions we'd be interested in hearing more about, and I think there is something about. This is a smaller version of it. And I've joked about O'Neill's Razor in the past, which is also not a joke at the same time. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> one of the reasons that I use that is I don't like that feeling of wondering and waiting when a book is going to come out and that kind of thing, too. But it also takes me out of the, I don't know, the, the, the seductive thought that since I bought one book, I'm owed the second at, mm -hmm. on, on some timetable of my 
choosing or of my feeling about it at the right. same time. Like, but, but the larger question is, like, if you buy the first book in a series, is there an implied contract about what you are, are not getting? And I think that's kind of interesting, frankly, because mm. I, I think if you're told it's the first book of a series, at some point it would be reasonable to get that book. Um, or are you more of a speculative investor at that point? Because the other thing is, if you if you don't buy the first book and it doesn't sell, then the author is maybe not going to get to write the second book. So it's a very like catch-22 situation that I, I find very hard to unravel, yeah, except I, very interesting at the same time. It is. I mean, I completely understand why folks who have read one book get invested in getting the second one or why folks who have read five are really invested in getting the sixth or however many games game of thrones books there are at this point i think you know really unless you pre-ordered and paid for all the books in the trilogy before (laughs) they Mm -hmm. came out you're not owed anything beyond the story in the book that you bought and read like and the promise of finishing the story is part of how they you know, sell you the first one. And I think that's where it gets tangly. It's like, oh, what if there's a cliffhanger and I'm just stuck hanging on the cliff mm-hmm. forever? But circumstances change. like, And people's ability, people's abilities change. People's interests change. And there have been situations, like even just in our careers in publishing, where a thing was supposed to be like a big trilogy. Yep. And we were hearing stuff about like the third book was just getting delayed and getting delayed and getting delayed because the author didn't have the juice or the drafts were so bad. Mm -hmm. And like, there's a point where it's not reader service to force the thing to get finished, just to be able to say it was finished. And we said this was going to be a trilogy and now it's going to be a trilogy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And even, I mean, again, I don't know, there's no way around this. It's just one of those unusual, I guess you're buying, what product are you buying? Are you buying the first of an installment of products mm-hmm. when you buy the first, I mean, literally, of course, you are buying that book itself. But what do, what do most people actually think they're buying? Well, yeah, and it's that point? It, it's so interesting because we don't have this with television. Like a new series starts, and it's a big question if there's going to be a second season a or how point. many seasons yeah. there will be. And stuff gets canceled before viewers are ready all the time. Mm-hmm. Or it, things are you know. And you they're get mad into the about third... it though too. I guess it, yeah. you know the people. But then they get it. over it. You get yeah. over it. You know. <laughs> Well, like, and I guess the finality of just it's canceled is maybe helpful right. in that regard. Yeah. And so, I I mean, maybe the move here is don't announce how many books there are going to be until <laughs> the next book is in process. You know, like right. you can you can end on a cliffhanger and promise to deliver on that cliffhanger, but only like if your publisher is already looking at the second book, yeah. <laughs> like something like that could be useful so that fans maybe don't feel like they got bait and switched, but also don't feel that they're owed something. Cause I think the creative people who do work like this, that requires a lot of emotional investment. I mean, we all do work that requires a lot of emotional investment, mm-hmm. but most of us don't have to do it in public right. and don't have to do it for the expectations of people that were never going to meet, but who feel like they have access to us and then be dragged out into like the public square to criticize us for not having done it or to demand to know where the thing is. And it's that dynamic that I'm really concerned Mm -hmm. about. I don't think that we should subject any of our public figures to that. It's not a productive or uh, to me, it doesn't feel like a healthy place to be as a fan of something. I want to remember that's a human on the other Mm -hmm. end of it. (laughs) Um, And maybe 
you know, there's some tension, obviously, between honoring our humanity and how marketing works. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and, and and short of like someone committing fraud, of like, no, there are no more. I mean, that's a very, I guess, obtuse way of thinking about it. But I think the best way to think about it is that both the author and the reader buyer are taking a chance, right? Yeah, that the books and- will continue, that they'll do well. Um, no authors. No fan is as disappointed as an author who can't write this, doesn't get a book deal for their second book because the first one doesn't sell. And if George R.R. Martin never finishes The Winds of Winter, no one is going to be more disappointed and upset about it than George R.R. Martin will be. Like, he won't need anyone to tell them how they feel about it. He's going to have enough of that. There's no amount of shaming that's going to make that book appear one second faster. Right. Right. It's just unhelpful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, got us on a little side uh, quest there. So let's uh, take a sponsor break and maybe talk about one of the line items. I guess we got to one of the news <laughs> items. Maybe we'll get to a couple more here after the sponsor break. I was very surprised. I, I guess the, the online discourse, such as I saw it, was so, I guess, one-sided from what I was seeing that I was really surprised to see that Amazon, um, that the the workers in Alabama voting on whether mm-hmm. or not to join the union um decided not to and at a pretty good clip like three to one um against rebecca were you surprised to see the result writ large and then the the margin on the result i was and i think it's also probably a product of the media that i follow and the discourse that we're parts of i as i've read a little bit more about it it seems that you know one of the things that often drives unionization beyond just workplace conditions, which it certainly seems to me that there are reasons to be concerned and upset about those with Amazon is wages. And in Mm -hmm. Alabama, in this Alabama warehouse, Amazon is already paying at least $15 an hour to people. So they are meeting or exceeding the proposed federal minimum wage. Um, I have wondered how this would do or what the outcome of this would have been in a place where warehouse workers were just getting whatever that state minimum wage was, whether it was $7 or $9. And if they, if the promise of collective bargaining for better wages could have, what was on the table, um, how that would have impacted it. It also, Amazon also though, it makes things really scary. Like the last time that Amazon workers did vote to unionize, Amazon closed down that warehouse. So it's not just, do I want to risk like upsetting my company or do I want to risk that maybe the union would make changes I wouldn't like? It's, uh, am I willing to take the risk of not having a job with this vote if I vote in favor of it? And that's very unfortunate. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm, I was surprised, especially given the the way that it was presented in the run up of, you know, highlighting Bessemer, Alabama's really strong history with unionizations. And I I think it's a reminder of really how big and how powerful and how scary Amazon can be. Um, yeah. And there's some questions about whether Amazon really respected the rules about mm-hmm. not interfering with this process. And um, so maybe there will be some investigation there. But um, yeah, I was surprised and I, I'm disappointed to, to see it. I I, I hope that at some point we will see a successful unionization among Amazon folks that makes a dent in some of the practices that are happening there. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we live in a world now where in any election, it seems like someone's saying, well, I don't believe the election's legit because the other party did something. Yeah. Sometimes that's true. 
sometimes it's yeah. not. I'm having a very difficult time being able to parse whether or not to take accusations that someone acted nefariously seriously now. I'm just like, I'm out on um, challenging like the validity of an election. I, I'm just, just because of the other stuff that's gone on mm. the federal level. It doesn't mean something didn't happen here, but like I just find my own appetite for people saying, well, the election was fraudulent, being like, come on, guys, we're just... And, but maybe it oh. was at the same time. I don't know. Yeah, And all I... this other stuff they're saying, you know, the... The, let's see. Amazon's lies, deception, and legal activities go unchallenged. Like, while we're formally filing charges against all the agreed, this is from mm-hmm. a piece on CNBC. We'll put the link in the show notes. There's a part of me that's like, it's an election. Believe the people what they say. I'm not sure I'm disappointed or I was, I thought, I guess I was more, I guess I wanted to see the union happen just maybe out of curiosity. Would it be a domino mm-hmm. that made some other things fall? But at some point, you got to, if, unless there is a problem with the election, I got to say, well, I believe these people know what they want in this situation, so let them go. Yeah, Their lives, think, not mine. I don't have much skin in this particular case. Yeah, to clarify, I haven't seen anything that's like calling into question the validity of the the votes themselves right. or the voting process, but about Amazon's alleged interference or not maybe not even inter- like coercion attempts right. or attempts to influence um, the ways that people would vote with threats of retaliation, mm. that sort of thing, and in the in the few days right before the vote, Amazon was like all over Twitter in a way that we don't usually see corporations. Yeah, that do, was like, a weird. I mean, a very going strange, after borderline attacking, disturbing situation. Yeah, yeah, attacking politicians who have, who supported the effort. It was very strange to see, and I guess I'm given the stories that we've heard from people who have worked inside Amazon warehouses, and this information is not hard to find. Like you can Google your way to all of the accusations about how workers are treated there. It's just not hard for me to believe that Amazon would also be attempting to coerce workers into Mm. voting a particular way or threaten them about the results of their votes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it's got to be a blow to um, unionization hopes and dreams among other Mm -hmm. Amazon locations. You can't look at this and say, boy, uh, hey guys in Albuquerque, no matter, I'm just picking someplace randomly. Yeah. Hey guys, uh, let's try a unionization effort here um, because this is a, a union stronghold, got a lot of media attention, and the voting was two to one against. However, it got there, it was two to one against. It would be difficult for someone in another location to say, well, even if it was coerced or other stuff was going on, you would expect everything to happen in the next location that went on here, and it wasn't close. Like, it just, mm-hmm. it just wasn't close in the way that it happened. So, yeah, I'm, I guess it, it feels like this is going to put to bed this question for a while, which I don't think is good. I don't think this is great that yeah. this kind of defeat is going to probably take all, all if, uh, much, if not all, of the oxygen around mm-hmm. labor practices on, let's be honest, one of the two or three most important companies in the world. Forget about how they're related to books. Like, this is one of the two yeah. or three most important influential, important, powerful companies in the world and having them be subject to scrutiny from all quarters is good for everyone. Agreed. Um, and this was this is not an, this is not going to be a vector of scrutiny like this, like we thought it might if this had succeeded. It's just not going to be the case. Yeah. Um, this is a I should have known something more about this. I'm very excited to see this. An unpublished <laughs> Richard Wright novel on pro- police brutality to be released. Um, this is a piece on Axios by um, Russell Contreras. 
Um, it's called The Man Who Lived Underground, which I don't know anything about this, but knowing that Wright, Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison inhabited sort of the same cultural space for a long time, and mm -hmm. The Invisible Man lives underground at the beginning, you know, that's a frame story. I'm fascinated to see, <laughs> you know, The Invisible Man, one of his friends is killed by cops. I haven't seen much about how this is or isn't related to Invisible Man, which I think is the greatest novel of the 20th century. I've said this before. Um, what a fascinating thing to happen. Did you know yeah. anything? What was your reaction to seeing this? I didn't know anything about this, but I think it's because nobody did. Yeah. Um, the publishers, all, American publishers, refused to have anything to do with it when he wrote it in the 40s. Um, the you know subject matter about race and police brutality was too intense, even after Wright had become well-known and mm. presumably made his publisher a lot of money on Native Son. And that his oldest daughter found the unpublished manuscript years ago at... Um, at a library, I think, that has his collection and then approached the Library of America about releasing it. Mm. Um, so it says here that portions of the novel were included in a short story that was published in 1944 and in a posthumous 1961 collection, but a complete version of it never made it to mm. publication. So let's see, the show comes out on April 19th. The book is released on the 20th. Mm. So if you're listening when this Next is fresh week. tomorrow, tomorrow you can... Mm. You can have this. I am also very excited and interested. I think um, what well, maybe we should pitch the listeners an episode where we read. Uh, oh yeah, Invisible Man and the Man Underground the who, man lived, who underground lived Underground at the same time. Um, really fascinating uh, to see, and uh, you know, probably it will be much too prescient and much too relatable to what still is happening now, eighty years later. It is. It is remarkable. I've got to say, I know a little bit about this time in publishing, especially of, of black literature. I'm not surprised it didn't get oh, published. Yeah. I mean, Native yeah. Son was, you know, an earth shattering event and it was not a critique of the police. Um, right. You know, that, that was a crime that the main character did commit for reasons that are complicated. And, you know, I don't need to go into Native Son right now. This is being framed for a double murder the main character mm -hmm. didn't commit fights back police brutality it feels it feels like a raw nerve now it feels like a raw yeah, nerve now and yeah. it's 70s years later it's just really remarkable and terrifying um that this is the case but an exciting exciting thing to know about um it sounds like that um malcolm wright the writer's grandson um that oh i'm sorry let me say this again this is up the thing where who, someone it's 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 been known here like Mm -hmm. um, Wright's eldest daughter, Julia Wright, yeah, yeah. unearthed the unpublished work years ago mm -hmm. at Yale's Beneke Rare Book and Manuscript Library and then approached the Library of America about releasing it. Library of America is releasing it. I'm surprised it's Library of America. Did no one at Random House or SNS or... Uh, Library of America, prestigious, but it's like a museum imprint, right? Like you publish. Mm -hmm. I'm a little surprised they didn't get the Zora treatment that her last book got. Like it was a kind of a big deal from, oh, from a big imprint. Yeah, I don't, or I would... go set a watchman or something else mm -hmm. like that. Why isn't it getting the literary hardcover, sort of the whole full court press? I'd be curious to hear Well, that. in my... 
if it were me, and I don't know that this is what Julia Wright did at all, but I think I might have some petty feelings about you were not willing to take the risk on this book back in the day, so you don't get to make money on it now. Well, someone's going to library. I mean, I get Library America. Like, yeah. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe that, you're right. This maybe is I can see obviously that. like purely yeah. pure speculation because you would think that one of the big publishers mm-hmm. would have wanted a crack at this and would have made a very big and very justified yeah. big deal out of it. I'm um, going to be exciting to see to see what this is all about. In all fairness, um, Library of America, I think, is owned by Random House, or at least they're distributed by Random oh, House. So okay. what I'm really saying is, why isn't this a double day? You know, why isn't this a FSG? Why, is this... why isn't this like... You know, yeah. like Ghost at a Watchman. You know, you know we, right. we, we just did this. Well, just did this. We've yeah. done this Why before. isn't this a Knopf title with a $100,000 yeah. marketing right. budget or on more, day one? And, you know, and, yeah. Or more. copies yeah. and prints yeah. and everything else. Yeah, like you know, that. I got a, I get a regular um, email from one of the PRH imprints that's just like, here are books that are coming out next month. And I saw the cover for this a couple days ago when I was scanning through my email. But the fact that it was just like a Richard Wright title in that email, and there weren't a bajillion stars around it, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that must be a Richard Wright novel I just didn't know about. Or and a this reprint, story... or a new edition, right, exactly. or an yeah. essay collection. or Right. Like, you know, I read Native Son, and I think that's the extent of my experience with Richard Wright. And then this story broke, and I was like, oh, they're just like, it's just like a hanging out in the PRH catalog like why does this not have a lot of fanfare around it in fairness fairness. i don't know why i care about fairness but i I think it is right that richard wright does not have the same currency as a name as zora or harper lee they just so maybe maybe i'm overestimating the appetite that the Mm. wider reading culture would have it's certainly i mean to kill a mockingbird also by the way when we were spitballing the other day what title probably had the most of our reader listeners read? We forgot, of course, the number of one course. draft pick and all such things to is kill To Kill a Mockingbird. Mockingbird. <laughs> um, so it isn't, Zora Neale Hurston has eclipsed Richard Wright in the zeitgeist, which is hugely ironic since they had a fairly rigorous rivalry. I actually took a mm. class in as an undergraduate called Wright versus Hurston, um, and they're different ways of <laughs> engaging with black literature. So that Hurston has pulled away uh, in the zeitgeist is fascinating. And Native Son, now we're really getting into annotated material, is a book of the month club selection in 1940. Mm. Hard to imagine now. Um, That's a bold it move was for a book huge, of the month club. Huge cultural phenomenon. Um, and Wright died young. He didn't write, he wrote, I think Black Boy came out, which is his semi I think, is it a memoir or semi-graphical novel? I can't remember. And Uncle Tom's Children was a short story collection. Doesn't kind of have the same stating power. Native Son, I think if people are looking for a mid-century novel from that era, you know, by a Chicago writer, they go Invisible Man Mm -hmm. now. So it's kind of betwixt and between, um, unfortunately, I think. But Richard Wright, um, a hugely, hugely influential writer. Um, And this sounds like the kind of book, if, if Native Son was a earthquake, this sounds like it would have been a supernova if someone had had the temerity to actually publish it and put it out into mm-hmm. the world in 19 god when when would have this have been 54 i don't it doesn't say when it was actually written and finished um because he died in 60 yeah um, and portions so. of it were in that collection in 44 so somewhere in there yeah know. yeah anyway um we're getting close to the end is there anything else you want to hit before we get out of here oh i don't want to hit it but i think we should hit mm. it since we're talking about police brutality and and Richard Wright and that this is still a thing that we are 
dealing with far too much in our society today. Um, it just broke about an hour before we sat down to record that one of the officers who was involved in murdering Brianna Taylor um, has gotten a book deal. His name is Jonathan Mattingly, and he has a book deal from Tennessee-based Post Hill Press um, to tell the inside story of what happened that night. Mm-hmm. Um we don't need to reiterate how we feel about folks who do things like this, continuing to get book deals and be rewarded for them. Um, it's being distributed by Simon and Schuster. And when, and the way that this works, like if you don't work in publishing is that smaller presses don't have the resources to, you know, deal with all of the distribution shenanigans that are required to get their books out to bookstores or out to Amazon warehouses or out to readers who order them. So they will contract with large publishers. PRH distributes a ton Mm -hmm. of smaller publishers. Simon & Schuster does as well. And it it happens to be that Simon & Schuster distributes for Post Hill Press. So um, among the Book Riot contributors, there's a lot of like, Simon & Schuster, why does this keep happening? And I think I just want to wonder out loud for a second, because I think we've I've wondered this. I, th- I know folks have like gone Googling. I don't know what kind of leverage Simon & Schuster or any big publisher has inside their contracts mm-hmm. with these distribution clients to, like to reject a particular title. And my guess about what's going on here is that if Simon & Schuster doesn't want to distribute this title, and Simon & Schuster declined to comment on the record for this Huffington Post piece, so we don't know what Simon mm-hmm. & Schuster thinks about it, but if they don't want to distribute it, do they feel like they have an option not to? Um, and it would seem to me that they don't think they have that option either without violating the terms of a contract or risking the distribution relationship with this small press and like losing them as a client altogether. Or maybe they're not willing to take that risk yet. But if you, I, I guess this is a call for a birdie. Yeah, like, I think we need are, birdies. And what does it distributing mean? Like just the whole... I'm sure there's a lot of different flavors of how this is put together, um, but it's not as simple as I don't. It, our, tell me if I'm wrong, Rebecca. Our understanding is it's not as simple as if it's one of their own titles and saying we're just not going to do Josh Holly's right. books, right? We're just not going to do that anymore. Yeah. The other wrinkle here with Simon and Schuster, which is in the process of being acquired by PRH, there's an antitrust situation if they just decide that they're not going to make their distribution channels available to independent and smaller presses. What is that rink? I mean, you would think people at Simon are now looking at these kinds of deals. Like, do, is this worth it to us to be in this right, kind of like, a business? I, I don't know. I, I can't imagine I they're not so. thinking about it seriously. Yeah, I if they're not, they that, should be. Yeah, I hope that conversation is happening in the same way that it seems that more conversations have been happening among publishers about like exercising those morality clauses that they have in contracts with authors and canceling deals for people who do morally abhorrent things. And maybe there's some conversation going on there about like wanting to write in the option to reject distributing a certain title. And I don't know how big Post Hill Press is. I don't know how much money Simon & Schuster makes each year for distributing them. I would hope that a company as big as Simon & Schuster is could look at a small press like that and be willing to lose them as a client altogether over something like this. They've also published books by Matt Goetz and a whole bunch of other Mm, characters that like, maybe you just don't want to be in business with Post Hill Press is also an option. Yeah, Um, Yeah. The kind of thing, though, that even three years ago, two years ago, 
in this show where we cover stuff like this, we weren't thinking about mm-hmm. these kinds of deals. So, like, I think it's interesting to see that the conversation around, you know, what publishing's responsibility is, you know, mm-hmm. like we said before, we think probably most of the people that are rank and file at big five publishers and, you know, and even most publishers writ large probably have politics and a perspective much like we do. We want to do things that resonate with our political viewpoints, our moral viewpoints. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing there are people at Simon Schuster. They're like, I don't know. This is a new thing for us to consider. We haven't thought about this as a vector of accountability in a kind of way. That's a great point. Yeah. These stories weren't getting written three or four years ago about look who else got a book deal and who's distributing it and let's go hold them accountable. It's a real, a, a fast and encouraging, I think, shift in how the movement within the industry and around the industry is working to hold publishers accountable for the contents of the things that they make available to the public. That feels pretty similar Mm -hmm. to, you know, folks saying to Facebook or Twitter, like, actually, you are accountable for what you allow people to say here. And just so you know, if you need to go take this out for a talking point to your friends or family, or if you're thinking about emailing (laughs) me, this is not censorship. Not censorship. (laughs) This, This guy could get a Xerox machine and type it out. Yep. As always, you can find links um, to, to this story and everything else we talked about, or at least within reason of things that I remember to put in the show notes. Bookright.com. Listen, let's have truth in advertising here. Honestly. Uh, give us feedback. Podcast at bookright.com. Um, I guess we ill-advisedly are asking for <laughs> ideas about how to do the kind of a show we say we're not doing. I just want to be honest. I don't want you to. I don't you want to expect you. To, I don't want you to expect a sequel when I'm not promising a sequel. That's all I'm saying here. Um, as always, Rebecca, thank you so much, and I'll talk to you next time. Have a good one. Bye.